This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. We're only a few weeks out from the 2022 midterms, and there is a lot to unpack. It seems like there's a new story every day about some race or another. So I've brought on some of my favorite political experts to help us all better understand what's at stake, what are the races to watch, and what this all means for 2024. My guests today are media and political strategists and my former podcasting co-host, Brian Goldsmith, I tried to get Katie to think about running for office. I, I seriously did. She won't She won't consider it, sadly for me. As well as Liz Smith, a 20-year veteran of Democratic political campaigns, from Barack Obama 2012 to Pete Buttigieg 2020. She also has a new memoir out called Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. And she has that same feral magnetism to her that Donald Trump does and Republican political consultant and host, along with David Axelrod, of the political podcast, Hacks on Tap, Mike Murphy. Oh, I've been freaked out for a decade about American politics. Let's dive in. Hello to my three amigos. So great to see you all. And I'm very excited to unpack these upcoming midterms, which I'm really getting pitted out about it. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I just wanted to paint that picture for all our listeners. I mean, listen, it's felt like a bit of a roller coaster in terms of what we might expect. And I mean, I have my sort of point of view, but I've got you three. So who cares what I think? What do you think is going to happen or give us sort of the state of play right now, knowing full well that things could change on a dime. Mike, what do you see happening? Well, you know, I'm, I've am i got the boring answer, which is I think it's going to be a typical midterm. You know, generally, since World War II, the average has been the president's party loses about 26 seats. So there have been three instances, you know, where that hasn't happened. So the big question is, is it different this time? Well, you take the midterm problems, you add inflation on it, gas prices, all that sort of stuff. And that would probably make it worse for the Democrats. But there are some different things going on. There's Roe, 
which has energized some young voters who normally don't vote in the off year. That could be a thumb on the scale. And I would say some old voters, too, Mike. Right, right, yeah. Exactly. But but the, <laughs> the turnout problem is young voters. Democrats right. have a big problem in the off year getting their young voters to show up. Maybe this will do it. There's some anecdotal evidence. We do a, at the University of, of Southern California Center for Political Future, where I'm involved, we do a voter registration thing. And this year is the biggest we've ever had by far. It's exploding which is atypical. So, you know, there's that. And the Republicans have nominated my beloved party that I'm hanging on to by a thread. Uh, has, Why? Have, we've nominated some real cinder blocks. Well, I'm a conservative. The you know, problem is I'm on policy. I'm right of center. So I can't, you know, get out the Karl Marx heart tattoo and join the Democrats. <laughs> but I've been voting for some lately, I have to admit, because we have some unfit people running. But in a wave election, a cinder block can get washed 20 feet so they could win. Senate is the question. Yeah. Liz, what do you see? So I agree with both you and with Mike. It has been a complete roller coaster, starting with the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan when we saw Biden's numbers just tank. And as a result, you know, in correlation with that, Democrats' fortunes across the country tank. Then the Dobbs decision coming out. And now I agree with Mike that it is reverting to sort of a normal midterm. But I'm going to add one more piece of bad news in there for Democrats, which is something that I've heard from people on battleground races across the country, which is the things that keep them up at night are one, gas prices, and two, a COVID surge. And I don't want to universalize my own experience too much, but I just personally just tested uh, positive for COVID an hour ago. Um, oh gosh, this I, just in, Liz. Yeah, just in. I'm going to put my mask on right here. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I'm hearing um, from doctors and people across the country, like ICUs are just filling up. And I think if you add inflation, gas prices, COVID surging onto everything that it is, you know, it's looking like a typical midterms, which is bad news for Democrats. Yeah, you know, I feel like the timing on these economic issues, Brian, could not be worse for the Democrats. I even read a piece this morning, and I forget where because I read so much, about inflation numbers sort of in just a few months kind of leveling off, but not in time for the midterms. So do you agree with Liz that we've got gas prices, inflation, and potentially a COVID surge, and that's going to really serve to bury the Democrats? No, I, I'm pretty pessimistic. I'm I'm a Democrat now. I'm no longer a journalist covering this stuff. And, you know, in, in life, as in politics, timing is everything. And the Democrats were in a pretty good position to win the election that didn't happen in early September. Um, they're in a pretty crappy position for the election that is actually happening um, in a few weeks. You have gas prices going up again. You have a failure of the party to drive an effective economic contrast. And that and not Roe is the number one issue. Two thirds of Americans think the economy is getting worse. Three quarters think that we're on the wrong track. This is a recipe for, as Mike said, a typical midterm year with, you know, substantial losses for the Democrats. Why haven't the Democrats, Liz, been able to make a compelling argument about the economy? It seems that they have almost abdicated this whole economic issue. I know traditionally voters think Republicans do a better job handling the economy, but it seems like the Democrats are coming up slightly empty handed to me. And correct me if I'm wrong. 
No, I look, I agree with that. I think it's the result of a couple things. And uh, one is that a lot of these economic issues, whether it's either whether it's inflation or gas prices, it's largely out of, you know, any one person, any one political party's control. So there is sort of, you know, hesitance to, about how to communicate about that because it is out of people's control. And we know that um, one day gas prices can be low and the next day Saudi Arabia can make an announcement at, right before the midterms that can um, cause gas prices to spike again. The second thing is, look, a lot of Democrats did sort of put all their eggs in the row basket. And um, when the Dobbs decision came out, we really saw a surge of enthusiasm there. And I still think row is going to be really important, but it does make me a little bit nervous whether I'm in New York or I was in Michigan last weekend and I look at all the Democrats ads and I got to say 90% of them are about row. And I just, I have heard less and less about it from voters, from friends who are outside of politics and more about inflation and gas prices. And, you know, I personally would like to see more Democrats going out there and saying, we feel your pain. We haven't gotten everything right, but we are trying to lower your costs. We did the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to allow Medicare to negotiate for lower gas prices, cap the price of insulin. We voted to import baby formula, which Republicans oppose. We voted to do this, that, and say, at least we are trying, whereas the Republicans are trying to make your life miserable and hope that it helps them win. But we have heard less of that messaging. And part of the reason for that is because it's more remote. Drug prices aren't going to get lower tomorrow. It's going to happen after the election. So the immediate economic concerns that voters have are harder for Democrats to address. Yeah, I think the problem is inflation is a politician killer because it breaks through all the talk and the three-dimensional chess you go to the grocery store and like you look at it like a year ago, I was buying the same stuff for a lot less. So every week you get kicked there. Then you get kicked at the gas pump. And so those two things break through all the, I've got a nine point plan or, you know, the, mm -hmm. and it's like, you know what? Trump might've been crazy, but when he was in, I wasn't getting slaughtered like this. And older people are looking at their 401ks and the stock market bouncing around. So it's nothing but pain. And they're doing what vote, you know, everybody talks about a blue wave. It's not really, it's the midterm wave. It can change color. It's tell the boss I'm unhappy. And Americans love doing that. We love changing the channel. We love playing the, pushing the eject button. And that's what's coming. And the only question is in a few of these close Senate races that the Republicans should be running away with, will the Republican candidates who are underperforming allow a Democrat to win in a year when they have no business winning? The house is gone. You know, I think yeah, that's over with. It's gone. Well, I want to talk about that and the role Marjorie Taylor Greene may have if, in fact, a Republican majority is in the House. But first, um, you know, James Carville said Republicans are hoping that women have a short attention span. We saw a really remarkable thing happen in Kansas in early mm -hmm. August when it came to codifying the Constitution, right, yeah. or getting rid of the protection for choice in Kansas, a pretty ruby red state, right? So women were incredibly organized. The turnout was enormous. Do American women have a short attention span? I mean, I guess that's the question. Or does the economy and those prices at the grocery store and gas station overwhelm the desire for reproductive rights in this country? What say you, Brian Goldsmith? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, a friend of mine said the Democrats were hoping for Rovember and it might have just been Rawgust. And, you know, that's that's a problem. 
I mean, in, in Kansas, people were just voting up or down on that one issue. And that is fundamentally different than voting for a candidate for the Senate, where you've got a whole range of issues on the ballot, um, including the economy and the cost of living and this stuff that just kind of punches you in the face every single day. People aren't out there trying, um, you know, and most people to get an abortion every single day, but they are shopping for gas and groceries. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, to Mike's point, the economy is not something that you can change between now and the election, but that doesn't mean that the, there isn't anything you can do if you're a Democrat. And I worry our party has failed to learn the lessons of President Obama's reelection in 2012, which Liz uh, played an integral role in, mm -hmm. where you had a, a you know, mediocre to bad economy that people were feeling, um, and Obama was in charge, but he was able to drive a contrast about who's fighting to make the economy work for people like me. And, and that's the, the contrast that I don't see out there. Yeah. And just to add to that, as the only woman besides you, Katie, on the call, and <laughs> I would say, yes, we um, I am proof uh, positive that women can have short attention spans. Um, but women can also be multitaskers and women are also responsible for balancing their family checkbooks, for, you know, filling up their gas tanks, for shopping for groceries. And these are um, things that they're seeing every day as well. So while you would think, okay, a fundamental right is on the line, that's number one thing. It is really hard to um, keep the focus on row when I think, as Mike said, you know, gas prices and the price of milk and whatever it is, is hitting you in the face um, every day. And so in places, you know, to Brian's point, um, like Kansas, where that's the thing on the ballot, in places like Michigan, where you're going to have that on the ballot, it row might be more of a factor because um, mm -hmm. they have um, an initiative there about whether to overturn a 1931 complete ban on abortion. So there right. it's on the ballot and it's literally in your face. But in a lot of other states, like if you live in New York, you know that our state law is very strong in protecting a woman's right to choose. There are seven battleground house races here that then Roe is probably going to take a back seat. If you live in Arizona, Roe and abortion have never been in the top five ish issues for voters. Yeah. But what about this national abortion ban that uh, all the Republicans are talking about? To me, that really increases the urgency of this issue a little more than normal, does it not? Look, I sort of agree, but I also think we have to realize that we deal with the electorate as it is, not as it should be. And I mm -hmm. agree. I think that these things should matter more. But it goes to show you that with a lot of voters, the things that matter most are the things that are right in front of their face. They don't think in terms of the long term. Right, right. And I think that's true of everything. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, there, there's also what's the most invisible group in American pop culture? Pro-life women. One out of six voters is a pro-life mm -hmm. female. The most pro-choice group in America, by the way, you know, we always say women. No, it's young men who also yeah. don't vote in the off-year elections. The real question about Roe is, will young men who tilt Democratic and are over very pro-choice in most places show up? Yeah. You know, what's happened is, or and Liz is right, there are plenty of states where it's a little bit settled. The Nevada Senate race, which doesn't get a lot of attention but could decide the Senate, they, they've got a constitutional prohibition there, so it's not killing Adam Laxalt the way the Democratic incumbent thought in a very pro-choice state. I think he's going to beat her and pick up that seat. So between gas and groceries and the fact that it, it's not as overwhelmingly an 80-20 issue, 
among the population and in those swing seats, it's more pro-choice than pro-life, but it, it, it's not the hammer. In some places, it's not seen as the top issue. The new New York Times poll. Right. 44% of people say the economy, only 8% say abortion rights. Well, what about this national ban, Brian? Is that looming in the minds of voters, you think, in some ways? If the you know Republicans take the Senate, they're going to start working on that, I think, pretty pronto, right? I'm not sure. I, I, I didn't see a lot of enthusiasm from Mitch McConnell for a national abortion ban. He may be kind of forced into it by a majority of his caucus, just as he's been forced into a whole bunch of stuff that he hasn't necessarily personally wanted to do. But, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to be the election driver. I mean, the the outcome of elections is as much about what is the issue territory you're fighting on as what each side says. And if we close this election on inflation and crime and perceptions about the direction of the economy, a lot of very flawed Republican candidates are going to get in because they have the edge on those issues. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Trump factor and the Biden factor. How effective has Trump been in terms of his endorsements of various candidates, Mike? I mean, he is still the standard bearer of the Republican Party. Is he helping, hurting? Is it a wash? Well, in most primaries, he helps a lot. But once you get him out of the primary world, you know, then then he's on a planet where he can barely breathe. In any swing general election, he's a problem, you know, where both parties are competitive. In those suburban congressional seats, he's a problem. You don't, you don't see all these candidates running to him. Now, we have a few candidates who win a primary and are clueless and are running the general election like a Republican primary. So there are a few places even in this wave where a Democrat who ought to lose a seat may win on that. But, but Trump is an anchor around the neck of the party in a general election. The problem is he has a need to be in the center of everything. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of the unwanted guest who shows up and, <laughs> you know, what do you do? Speaking of the anchor, let's talk about the anchor lady yeah. running for uh, governor in the state of Arizona, Carrie Lake, who is sort of the new face of Trumpism. And I don't know if you all watched Dana Bash interview her mm-hmm. on on State of the Union on Sunday. I thought... Dana did a real, a really incredible job. She kept calling her Dana, I think, to get under her skin. I don't know if you noticed that. Mm-hmm. She kind of interchanged Dana and Dana. Dana, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that figure you just put out. The real issue, Dana, is that the people don't trust. The question me. is, are you Dana, undermining Dana, faith Dana. in elections by saying that the 2020 election was stolen when there's absolutely no evidence to support that. Dana, in 2018, you know, she is really embracing Trump and vice versa. So what do you see going on there? Well, I think that um, she's been a really fascinating candidate because unlike a lot of the other sort of Trump endorsed Senate candidates this cycle uh, who run away from the press, don't really communicate with the public, sort of hide the ball. She's been very full frontal in her um, campaigning, both with voters traveling around the state and with local and national media. And she has that same feral magnetism to her that Donald Trump does and a sort of a knowledge of how to work a stage, how to work the media. That's interesting. Feral magnetism. (laughs) Yeah. But there is something there is something to when you see her work a stage that you don't 
quite have with a Herschel Walker. You don't have with a, a Doug Mastriano or Blake Masters. And it's why I think that she will be one of the you know election deniers who slips through on the gubernatorial level. But she's sort of perfected Trumpism and figured out how to take the crazy um, and well, what I view as crazy and how to sort of soft sell it in these interviews. And certainly with Dana Bash, I mean, you saw just how slippery she was. One of the problems there, right, is that we don't have the strongest of Democratic candidates. Sarah, I'll just put it that way. And she refuses to um, debate Carrie Lake, which I think yeah, is... Yeah, why is she doing that? I, her, her opponent, and that's the Secretary of State, right? Katie Hobbs. Yeah. She's a train wreck of a candidate. That's the problem. They've, they've got a slow pony. A train wreck of a candidate. She's really turned out to be a dud. And that's given the race to Carrie Lake in a state that yeah. is very wave affected. Yeah. And, and if you've been a, um, a major market local TV news anchor for 20 years, that is pretty darn good preparation for running for office and being uh, slick on the receiving end of TV interviews and, and knowing how to make an appearance that's effective. And, you know, there's yeah. just no comparison in terms of candidate skills between <laughs> right. her and She's her a great opponent. retail politician and whatever you think. And she has the best Zoom filter in the business. The interviews were <laughs> really? hilarious because there's about oh four black Promis filters on the camera. She stole it. She stole it from Barbara Walters. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You yeah. can't see a poor. Yeah. yeah. Is that true? Yes, yeah. you got to see yeah. it. But I, I also think, Katie, maybe we've found the next chapter for you. Oh, 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 I, I don't think so. I, I try to get so, Katie Liz. to think about running for office. I, I seriously did. She won't she won't consider it, sadly <laughs> oh, for me. I don't know. My my sadly skin for is America. Too, <laughs> my skin is too thin for that. When we come back, did you know more than two hundred election deniers are running for office up and down the ballot? We talk about what that means for our democracy right after this. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Can we just talk about a few other races where the Trump factor has helped? J.D. Vance obviously wouldn't be getting as much traction as he is. And I know he didn't do very well in that debate. Tim Ryan kind of ate his lunch. But isn't he still favored to win in Ohio, guys? I, I would argue it slightly differently. 
if it weren't for Trump, the Republican would be running away with a lot of these races. I mean, David McCormick in Pennsylvania, I think, would be up five or 10 um, over Fetterman. It's, it's mm. because Trump pushed a lot of very flawed Republican candidates, you know, to the nomination that a lot of these races that, as Mike says, are very wave susceptible are actually competitive. Helpful in the primary, hurtful in the general. I exactly. It, it, totally true. Vance is a terrible candidate. Ryan is running the best Democratic swing state campaign in the country for a Democrat. Now, he's breaking all the DNC rules. Uh, and he's running as kind of a lunch pail, a little more culturally conservative. There's a lesson and, and, to be and learned there. And kind of keeping his distance from Biden, right? And totally. saying yeah, that J.D. Vance, we, need, we don't need an ass kisser, we need an ass kicker, which yeah. was a pretty good line, you got to admit. Th that said, this is an election where a box of hammers can win Ohio if they've got an hour after it. So I think it'll be closer than it ought to be. And maybe he'll do the upset of the century there, but... He, he's he's going to need more of a lead than he has right now. But it goes back to what, um, and I agree with Mike, but it goes back to what Brian was saying, which is that so few Democrats are really weaponizing the economic case. Tim is an exception. Um, he, from the day after J.D. won the primary, started running ads, talking about how J.D. turned his back on the state of Ohio, moved to Silicon Valley, made all this money, is coming back, is funded by these billionaires. And it does remind me a little bit more of the messaging that Barack Obama used very effectively against mm -hmm. Mitt Romney in 2012, which is to make the Republicans seem like they're the ones out of touch and that they're going to be disasters for your family. And that's one of the reasons why he's been able to hang tough in there. But there's no doubt it is going to be really, really tough for a Democrat to win in this environment in Ohio. How much is Biden hurting? And I mean, it's so frustrating to me that the Democrats seem to be so feckless. On the other hand, they've got a Democratic president whose approval rating is, what, 40? I don't even know what the latest approval rating is. Uh, 43. He's he's creeped up a little, but his disapproval is 55. So the political majority is unapproved. So, Brian, how much of an albatross is Joe Biden for all these Democratic candidates? You see people like Tim Ryan distancing himself um, that's happened in other races. I think Mark Kelly has tried to do that in Arizona in his Senate race. Um, but, but you know, they all have D's after their names. How much can they really do that? I mean, no more than normal. Normally, in a midterm year, whoever is the incumbent president hurts his party a little bit. And the intensity of opposition to Joe Biden is not like the intensity of opposition to Donald Trump, or even the intensity of opposition to Barack Obama in 2010. He doesn't generate quite that level of vitriol, which is why you're seeing a lot of the Republican attack machine go after other villains, you know, AOC and even Pelosi and, and a few others. Um, so he doesn't help. But I, I don't think that that is the story of the election. <laughs> Who's the Democratic attack machine going after? <laughs> Well, I, I think his name rhymes with Ronald Trump, you know, I, I think. But the problem is he's not president. Why is Joe Biden so unpopular and have things like the climate bill, the student debt cancellation, anything he's done? Yeah. Why is he still so unpopular? Well, you know, he's the Rodney Dangerfield of American politics because on the legislative side, he's done really well. Mm -hmm. He has passed more big, important bipartisan stuff 
than any president in decades. The CHIPS bill is huge. Right, yeah. You know, we're going to build semiconductors here and get kind of the energy equivalents, uh, you know, uh, a thing for the semis that are the key to almost anything we're going to make in the future. A decent gun bill got done. Of course, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, one thing after another. I think there are two failures, though. One is, you know, the minute they got infrastructure done, they switched over to, hey, let's spend World War II-level money uh, on BNFDR. And it, it, they never got the victory lap they deserved there, and they didn't really try to take it. Uh, and, you, you know, I would be selling the chips bill like the Apollo Project. It is a huge win for $100,000-a-year American manufacturing jobs. And 160-ish Republicans voted, no, no, let the Chinese run the future. Um, I don't hear that. I don't hear mm-hmm. any of that stuff. I, 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 so uh, Biden has not grabbed the microphone and done what he could do. Second, when you're paying mini bar prices for gasoline, mm-hmm. the president's going to yeah. get his butt kicked by the American public. And and even though Biden didn't do it, it's the world market. I was going to say really it's control, not his fault. I but mean, he's right. got the big job. The big job means you get the big blame. I guess. And and third, voters rarely vote to say thank you. They right. vote on a choice about the future. They don't vote on the past. And you all were saying that you didn't think Biden, or I, my understanding is you believe that Biden doesn't elicit the, the hardcore vitriol that, say, Barack Obama does. But, I mean, I was out on Long Island this weekend, and there was a Lee Zeldin caravan of cars with a lot of MAGA flags, a lot of Trump, you know, 2024 flags, and a lot of F Joe Biden flags. It was so gross. So I do feel like, you know, if, if he is the Rodney Dangerfield of politics, that he does, uh, maybe it's just the pro-Trump, the hardcore Trump people. But I just, honestly, it sickened me to see car after car with these huge flags that said F Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, look, I think he does elicit um, maybe not as much as as Barack Obama, maybe not as Donald Trump, but he does elicit a lot of strong feelings from um, from Republicans. And that's why it's been really, really smart that unlike Donald Trump, he's sort of put his ego in the backseat. You don't see him. Put, um, sticking his neck out or popping up in these states where he is going to be a millstone around the neck of Democratic candidates. And the smartest thing that Joe Biden can do right now is just go be in rooms with rich people and raise um, more money. Because part of the reason why Democrats, why their numbers are falling in all these races across the country is you see the outside groups for Senate Republicans, for congressional Republicans um, spending um, just ungodly uh, sums of money um, to defeat the Democrats. And that the cash um, imbalance is a big problem for Democrats. So that's why it's smart of Biden to go to places like Oregon or Colorado, where he can help Kamala Harris, you know, was in the suburbs of Detroit this past weekend. But um, otherwise, it's really smart of Joe Biden to sort of take a backseat in this election. Before we talk about some individual races, we got a lot of election deniers running out there. We also have secretary of states running who basically say the 2020 election was rigged and they're going to have the power to overturn. Right. Basically, essentially Mm -hmm. the will of the people and de facto rig the next election. Right. I mean, how terrifying is that in terms of our democratic principles? And how much is it going to come to fruition if some of these election deniers actually win their, win their races? 
Well, it's a problem. And there was a headline this morning uh, in the New York Times that I thought, you know, ought to be. Oh, I saw that for the history books. You know, voters see democracy in peril, but mostly don't care. Right. And and I, I think that is the story that other issues are taking precedence because, you know, abstract. It's not in front of their faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, little d democratic principles are not, you know, <laughs> what I'm thinking about as a voter day to day. And so, yes, there will be election deniers swept up in this thing, partly because Trump has made that a, a requirement for not just winning his endorsement, but but extinguishing his opposition. I mean, he went after yesterday, I think, uh, or two days ago, the Republican nominee for Senate in Colorado, which is mm-hmm. potentially a very competitive race because he'd rather lose than have a Republican who's not totally indebted to him. So he's been very effective as a sort of neo-fascist in taking control of his party and punishing people, even people who agree with them 80% of the time, if they're not gonna take the full MAGA line on elections. And Mike, doesn't this freak you out? Oh, I've been freaked out for a decade about American (laughs) politics. But first of all, Trump's losing his grip. No, but about democracy. I think it's in a decline. So we'll see. We'll see. New primary poll. Trump gets 49%. That means he'd win nomination now, but it's not what it used to be. So politics is dynamic. It's always changing. I worry about democracy, but I don't panic about it. We have a huge cultural failure in the U.S. We, we've converted politics into a reality show with no stakes, with Real Housewives of the Presidency. And <laughs> so people have become spectators. And they're like, ah, it's all rhetoric. They don't believe there's a real threat. Because if they thought there's a real threat, they'd do something about it. And remember, it's tribal. The Democrats all think, you know, democracy is gone. Trump's going to goose step into the White House. You know, and that's half the vote. The other half think, yeah, maybe 15% of them are worried. The others say, yeah, it's rhetoric. So the country is not unified on the problem. I have some faith, like in the last election, that good people in the right places will do the right thing in the end. I mean, Trump's thing was thrown out by every judge who looked at it. Election officials of the Republican Party. It's easy for Democrats to call Trump names, and they're right. I agree with them. But Republicans have to commit career suicide to do it. But people did it. Brad Raffensperger did it. The election officials in Michigan did it. So do I believe the threat is there and I'm, am I extremely worked up about it? Yes. Do I think it's the crux of this election? No. But I think measures are going to have to be taken. And the one thing they may get done in the lame duck, I would bet they will, is the Electoral Count Reform Act, which mm-hmm. is a quiet technical piece of legislation that bolts down the Electoral College, which is vital. Now, the left will say, oh, the Supreme Court won't do it. No, they won't. It, it is it is the the patch on the software that has created a lot of this vulnerability. And I think that's going to be gone by Christmas or by the end of January. Liz, I want you to weigh in on this because this is something I can't say it keeps me up at night, but I'm complete, very, very stressed out about uh, sort of having the cards stacked in a way in many of these states that will basically disrupt democracy. Right. And, and it's you've got governors, you've got secretaries of state, attorneys general, state legislators. I think there are over 200 election deniers, you know, running for office across the country at every level. And so, yeah, no, we should be very concerned. But I, you know, I don't have anything inspiring or, or heartening to say on this. It's that it does seem more remote to people. And the thing that 
gets less focus is not necessarily the Doug Mastriano's or Carrie Lakes, but all the people up and down the ticket right. who are going to get elected. And, and who have actual power in this arena, right? Right. Yep. Yep. Who are pulling the levers of elections. And who have been unabashed, by the way, and how they've campaigned on this. They haven't like tried to hide the ball here. They've been very open about the fact that, um, you know, they think 2020 was stolen and that if 2024 doesn't go their way, that they'll make sure that they or their secretary of state, whoever it is, you know, takes a close look at things. So I think it, it is something we should be very concerned about because increasingly it looks like the lunatics have been taking over the asylum in the GOP. And that not only that is that they are very um, embracing and like Michigan was on the early end of this, like in April 2020, when we saw violent militias storm the Capitol there, it almost felt like a test run for January 6th. And the election denialism does sort of seem to go hand in hand with electoral violence. And I just think that that's something not that we need another thing to be concerned about after this. Sorry, Katie. But another thing that we should keep an eye on. And that's something I'm certainly concerned about um, going into the November election. Yeah, I'd say one other thing. There is no moral equivalence between far left AOC, Bernie Democrats and and MAGA Republicans. The far left people believe in democracy and the rule of law, and they just hold policy views with which moderate voters disagree. Uh, But the problem is Democrats have been a little bit too defined by some of these extreme voices to the point where in polling, swing voters see Democrats and Republicans as equally extreme. That is a big, big issue. And Democrats need to turn around and address it ASAP or it's going to be the death of our party in all sorts of critical races. Yeah, I agree with that. One footnote, and this is not a ray of hope or anything. It, it's kind of like... God forbid, a, Mike. A, 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 flickering, <laughs> a flickering light bulb of some hope. A third to 40% of the election deniers are lying through their teeth because they're trying to survive in Republican politics. It's empty rhetoric. The worry is the other six, 50 to 60% that are stone-cold nuts, and how many of them actually win. And the, the, the craziest one I worry about, because I think she has a good chance of winning, is the potential future governor of Arizona. The, the rest of the mastery, some, those are mostly going to all get killed off by the electorate. But we could have a real crank or two as a governor, which is why, again, the Electoral College Reform Act, you got to take some of the power away. Uh, so if you have a rogue governor, they can't start, you know, sending non-elected Electoral College people to misrepresent right. the state's voters' intention. That is the big loophole. Well, let's hope that happens. Before we dig into a few of these states, so... I, you know, we've mentioned a lot of polls already in this conversation and polling was very problematic um, and, and obviously flawed in the past. And it doesn't seem that a lot of changes has have been instituted to improve the accuracy of polling. So how you know, when when you look at the polling, are you are, are do you believe it or are you kind of thinking, hmm, I'm I'm that might be under reporting certain certain groups, you know, Trump supporters don't want to be as forthcoming with pollsters. So they sometimes overestimate Democratic, you know, turnout or the effect of, of Democratic turnout. So what what's your take on polling these days? Yeah, I, I'm with you. With every election cycle, I um, have less and less faith in public polling. 
And one thing that we've just seen consistently the last few cycles is that it does seem to undercount or underestimate the support for Republican candidates um, and for Trump supporters because they are, you know, less trusting of pollsters. So, you know, we saw a massive, massive difference between the public polls in 2020 and and the actual results in places like Ohio and Wisconsin um, and even in Michigan, it was a little bit less of that, but, um, and that makes me really concerned because in Ohio and Wisconsin, it looks like those Senate races are going away from us, but in Michigan, you still see sort of healthy leads for Gretchen Whitmer there um, and some of the candidates there, but it, it does make me concerned that we are sort of missing the picture here. Then add in with that, you have these completely out of left field polls where you see the Democrat up by one point in the gubernatorial race in Oklahoma, or where you see Lee Zeldin within four points of um, Kathy Hochul in a poll today. And if you put too much faith in polls, you might die of whiplash. Mm -hmm. You know, we did an episode of Hacks on Tap with a, a PhD Republican pollster who said, you know, polling isn't what it used to be. The, mm -hmm. the, the science of it is very strong. You get a random sample of voters, it's, it's, it's very telling. But two problems. One is it's hard to get a random sample anymore because nobody answers their phone. So you have to do internet panels. You have right. to text people. They're, it, they're called multimodal. It's the best we've got now, but it's trickier. The other problem is most people totally misunderstand polling. They use it like a therapy animal. Oh, my side's ahead. We're going to win. I feel good. Oh, no, new poll. New York Times says we're going to lose. I feel bad. Must be something wrong with that poll. The polls are terrible at projecting forward. What political consultants use polls for is to take the voter's head apart to figure out what new information we can inject into the campaign dialogue to try to get a future outcome to move our way. Who you're going to vote for is the rearview mirror. You can figure out who would have won an election that didn't exist a week ago. So, and then that, that stupid question the media loves of the generic ballot, which right. we don't vote for Congress nationally. So that's misleading. But again, the, the media business, is, polling is the only time where the media will create a story by buying a poll, often a crappy cheap one, and then report that news. So people need to like relax. I was going to say, it feels like the media is being really irresponsible in, totally. in, in, its, re in its reliance on these polls. Right, Brian? I would say there are two additional problems, and I totally agree with you, Katie. Um, one is undercounting non-college educated voters who have become very skeptical about all sorts of institutions, including the press, including pollsters, uh, in part because they've been trained by Trump to be that way. He's quite open about that. But second, um, more optimistically from a Democratic perspective, you could see a different composition of the electorate. Mike and Liz were alluding to this earlier because of Roe, because of other factors that make this election potentially a little bit different than normal. You could see greater numbers of young people, of Democrats, of African-Americans than typically shows up for uh, a midterm election. And that could change the modeling um, behind a lot of this polling. This polling is often built on assumptions about right. likely voters. Yeah, you never want to trust the when they say this poll is likely voters. It sounds better. It's actually much worse because the pollsters made arbitrary choices about who's going to vote. And they don't really know. <laughs> they don't know. They don't know. The, the hardest thing that they should and the good ones work on is get a true random sample of, based on history, the most likely electorate. And then they can ask mm -hmm. some trick questions about what date is the election? 
Or who are you going to vote for without giving names? If they can name the candidate, then you know mm-hmm. they're engaged in a report. So there's some some trickery to it. But polling is still very helpful to run a campaign. But if you want to look at a poll today and decide who's going to win all the elections and decide whether you feel good or bad, it, 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 it helps, but it can't really do that for you. History is the best guide of how people vote. After the break, we're going to dig into some very juicy state races. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Let's talk Georgia. And Mike, you can also talk about any state you're interested in, but... Let's talk about Georgia because it is crazy. I mean, a oh. Herschel Walker <laughs> versus, I mean, Raphael Warnock. Go ahead. Just have at it, guys. Well, you think this is crazy. Wait till Herschel Walker wins and Trump starts talking about him as the leading VP candidate. There will be lines outside psychiatrist's office for miles in the east and west coast. Um, you know, Georgia is going to be a runoff. We get to do this thing again. They have a law if you don't get to 50 and there's a libertarian running. So it's quite likely we have a, a, the whole Senate or one extra vote uh, decided in early December, not even on Election Day. But look, Herschel's a classic box of hammers candidate. In a wave, he can win. Uh, and so he's got, I saw this, you know, with other candidates. When you're wildly credentialed in something outside politics and people are in a wrong track election and hate politics, they give you a lot of leeway. You mean the fact that he's a, an honorary police officer? Is that what you're alluding to? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Everybody's laughing about the toy badge. But if you deconstruct that to that election and that electorate, and I've worked statewide in Georgia, that badge said, I like cops. And that's not bad for a Georgia candidate to have be. The worst moment of that debate was not Walker's. Walker did better. He, you know, he was mediocre, but Warnock was so bad. When Warnock can't answer if he's for Joe Biden or not, come on. We all know he's for Joe Biden. It's okay to say it. But he, he won't answer. He becomes a politician, and Walker's the simple guy saying the Biden authentic. groceries. Yes. Yeah. Walker had a better debate than he deserved, and Warnock had an awful debate. It was a draw, and it should have been a wipeout. And I can even argue, net-net, I think Herschel's going to be a little higher in the polling this week because I think he 
came out of it better than even. Yeah, and he partially benefited from the expectations being set so low. Yeah. He did a good job of setting them low, but Democrats did a good job of doing it for him. And I think that was a mistake going into this. And I think all along, to some extent, that Democrats have underestimated uh, Herschel Walker's appeal. But what about the hypocrisy of, of being anti-abortion and, and, you know, saying that was his check? Do people just not care? I think people care about where you stand on an issue. I think less and less over time, people care about hypocrisy. So for if you're a Republican voter, you care about um, keeping the Senate. What you care about is the fact that Herschel Walker is saying the right things to you now on abortion. Whatever he did in his past, I don't think it matters that much to him. I know people are saying it could help around the margins with um, swing voters, and, and maybe that's possible. But uh, I think this is an election cycle where so many people already have their minds made up that it's not going to change a lot of minds on Herschel Walker. And others are free to disagree. But I think the other interesting thing that I'm looking at in Georgia is do split ticket voters still exist? Because we are seeing very different polling numbers in the gubernatorial race from what we're seeing in the Senate race, where Brian Kemp has a very healthy lead over Stacey Abrams. And in recent years, we've really seen a drop off in split ticket voters. So it'll be fascinating to see if how many people in Georgia are willing to um, cast a ballot, you know, uh, for Kemp, but then also for Warnock. My guess is not as many as we're seeing in the polling right now, but that is something that I think matters a lot for the future of you know, partisan politics in the country. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been reading, Brian, a lot about people voting for Josh Shapiro in yeah. Pennsylvania and then Mehmet Oz for Senate when you're talking about like that Mehmet Oz is gaining ground. And I want to talk about that race now yeah. because that to me is so fascinating on so many different levels. Um, can what I say one thing about, about Georgia before oh, we move go to ahead. Pennsylvania? Yeah, I, sure. I hate to break up your flow. No, no, but, no. You know. yeah, that, that's okay. I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we worked together a long time. <laughs> so no, go ahead. I, I would say I think Warnock has got a hope that he hits 50 in November because I think December, and I'm not sure if Mike and Liz agree, is no, very agree. dangerous for him because in December it becomes potentially a fight over who controls the Senate. And I think a lot of voters could hold their noses and vote for Walker because in a generic ballot kind of election, they would prefer Republican control over Democratic control in Georgia. Also lower turnout and the R's will smell blood and they turn out. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's move to, to Pennsylvania because a lot of people are saying in Pennsylvania, to your point, Liz, about Georgia, it also might be a split ticket with people voting for Josh Shapiro and Mehmet Oz. Let's talk about that race. John Fetterman, I've been fascinated by this, by the NBC political correspondent saying that he didn't understand sort of the small talk. And he uses, I guess, a teleprompter to help with some of the auditory issues caused by his stroke. Um, that has been a fascinating race. Also, I know Mehmet Oz and talking about crudités at the grocery store, which is almost like Obama talking about arugula, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so what's happening there? How do you see this all shaking out? Who wants to take that? Well, you know, what's fascinating is today I saw a brand new ad that Oz put up um, in which he says, or the voiceover says, 
John Fetterman is not like Josh Shapiro. He is extreme on crime. So Oz is making an explicit play for Shapiro voters and basically throwing Mastriano under the bus by pumping up Shapiro as being good and reasonable on criminal justice matters and crime. So Oz really sees sort of his fate as tied to getting some of those split ticket voters. Like suburban women, Liz? Yeah, exactly. Like people who might have concerns about Fetterman being too progressive on criminal justice issues. And so it was talking about his votes on the parole board. But there also is this factor about Fetterman's health. And I think some of it, some of the criticisms are fair, some are unfair. But again, we can't tell voters what they care about. And the debate that's coming up is going to be really, really, really important um, and more important than your average debate because voters are going to be looking to see, can John Fetterman perform in a way that gives me the confidence in his ability to to perform for me as a U.S. senator? And that's why I don't think that their decision to do the NBC interview was that much of a disaster. You know, I know feelings are split on it, but it could also be a dynamic like we saw in Georgia where Republicans, Walker, Democrats lowered the expectations so much for Walker that, you know, if he could just speak in complete sentences, it's basically a win. And I, we might see that dynamic for Fetterman in the upcoming. Yeah, debate. sort of like Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin yeah. did well in that debate because she was so underestimated and can I call you Joe? And and she was skimming right. the trees, but she was able to do, you know, as long as her head didn't spin around and she didn't vomit, you know, that people thought she was pretty good. Exactly. You know, Oz, though, Fetterman is getting killed by what we call the second look in politics. He had some rocket fuel. He kept going and people take the final look. The stroke has been a problem. Now, I think the Fetterman campaign could have done a better job of making him Rocky and the whole state rooting for him on the stroke instead of being guarded about it. They've, mm-hmm. they've kind of changed that up. They've been in a droit campaign otherwise. Uh, and the other problem is the crime record. You know, there are two kinds of Democratic crime records. They're kind of moderate ones that Republicans can manufacture some trouble about. And there's pretty hardcore stuff where they actually mean the liberal point of view on crime and voters aren't there and the Republicans kill him with it. That's what happened in Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes. And it's happening now to Fetterman. So you're going to have a debate where the question that I think Fetterman can navigate with low expectations is the stroke issue. But Oz made a living on TV, and he's really, he's caught something on this crime stuff. It's real. And, you know, it Democrats get uncomfortable, oh, those Republicans again. Well, they, 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 they scored here because there's real stuff. He's got felons working on his campaign because he's a very progressive guy on that. You know, you can argue the policy, maybe he's right. But the voters of Pennsylvania and the suburbs and other areas, the uh, exurbs, aren't there Mm -hmm. and hard in a campaign to tell people they're wrong. This is another argument for vigorously contested primaries. Yeah. In Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin, Fetterman and Barnes didn't really have a back and forth with their opponents about their vulnerabilities. Those were both 100% positive elections and campaigns, Mm -hmm. and it would have served Democratic voters better if this stuff could have been litigated earlier, if we could have seen how Barnes and Fetterman would have held up on those issues, you know, six months ago rather than a couple yeah. of weeks before the election. The Wisconsin candidate, I think either of them would have been much stronger 
Uh, Barnes was uh, it, that was madness in their primary to do what they did politically. But what's also madness is that Fetterman and Barnes's campaigns didn't see these attacks coming from a mile away. Yeah. Um, smart candidates like Tim Ryan in Ohio, or even if you look at Cheryl Beasley in North Carolina or Val Demings in Florida, they knew that Republicans were going to come back with the defund the police playbook, and they made sure over the summer to run ads featuring um, sheriffs or, you know, cops, whatever, directed camera talking about how each of these candidates would be tough on crime. And um, neither Fetterman nor Barnes did that, even when they arguably had or inarguably had the worst negatives on these issues. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they didn't prepare for that is malpractice. Well, let's just you bring them up. Beasley and Demings, are they uh, both going to lose? Probably. They're both in striking distance, but this year I would bet against both of them. Mm -hmm. Beasley, I think, has a slightly better shot based on data I've seen, um, including public polls, than uh, Demings in Florida. I think Florida is going to be very, very tough. Uh, North Carolina these days, uh, interestingly, is is a little bit tighter. Uh, but I, I think given where this is headed, I, I don't disagree with Mike. So can I plug yeah, one please. last race real quick? I'm doing the super PAC on this one because he's a friend of mine, and it's an amazing race, which is the Utah Senate race. You have Evan McMullen, a Republican Hill staffer, former CIA clandestine services agent, running as an independent with this amazing kind of rep Republicrat coalition of independents, Democrats, and a significant amount of Republicans running against Republican incumbent Mike Lee, who had been in trouble. He had a primary 39% of the state Republicans voted against him. This thing is neck and neck. It's not being noticed. McMullen says, and he means it, I will not caucus with Schumer or McConnell. I will be truly independent in the Senate. And, of course, the Club for Growth and all the super PACs on the hard R side are going after him. But he's gone from 17 behind to a margin of error race. It's really kind of amazing. And it's a real Mr. Smith thing. And we'll see if it can survive the hatchet's flying through the air right now. But um, it, it's the only time I've seen a genuine hybrid candidacy with a lot of support from all three parties, not just two and a label. And we'll see what happens. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. Well, donors need to pay more attention to races in the Pacific and Mountain time zones. Um, yeah. They have a little bit of the same problem that the New York, D.C. press does in covering races across the whole country. Mm -hmm. Nevada is critical to holding the Senate. Utah is a really fascinating race for the pro-democracy cause. And so I, I think these things are really worth uh, focusing on. And you were saying, Nevada, earlier that the Democratic incumbent senator uh, is likely to lose to Paul Laxalt's son, right? I think it's very, very close. Um, I, I'm not quite willing to go as far as Mike and say that she's likely to lose. I, I think she could lose. I think, you know, if the election were today, she might. Um, Nevada uh, Democrats have a history of pulling out these tough races over the last 10 years. We'll see if they can do it this time. But part of the problem has been extraordinary Democratic deterioration among Latino voters who are not right. a monolith. We haven't talked about that. Latinos in Florida are very different than Latinos in Arizona and even within these states, you know, Dominicans are different than Nicaraguans. And I mean, these are all individual voters. But I think we can make some generalizations about a group that 
uh, Democrats considered part of their base. Remember the, all the talk about communities of color and black and brown voters? Well, Latinos are not like black voters who vote 90% or 85% for the Democratic Party. Very, very different you know, history, um, political ideology, and, and this could become a real crisis for the party. And as much attention as it has gotten over the last few weeks, it is, it is not enough. Well, it got a lot of attention in Florida in 2020, right? Because they were very surprised how the Latino vote panned out in 2020. Um, and so I think this has in been a South long Texas time. Texas, too. Yeah, I mean, this, this, has, been this thing has been a long time coming. The, the Dems always go to identity with the Latino vote, while the Republicans go with lunch pail stuff. And what's fascinating mm-hmm. about Nevada, that hugely powerful Latino vote there is also heavily unionized. Right. Culinary workers in Clark County. And that's but the old that ghost of the... But that usually helps the Democrats, doesn't it? It, it the does. Heavy it's the old, Harry, the old Harry Reid machine. But Harry's right. gone now, and the machine right now is not doing what it normally does. It's one reason why I bet on Laxalt. But we're see because there's some cross-pressure there. We'll see if the trend continues. I, wa- I have to ask you about Arizona real quickly. Blake Masters and Mark Kelly. I'm friendly with Mark Kelly because I did a documentary about gun gun violence and got to know Mark and Gabby pretty well. And uh, Blake Masters has kind of changed his website when it came to his anti-abortion policies. And is Mark going to win? I think I- he is. Yeah, I think he is. He's running another really, really good campaign where he has separated his brand a lot um, from the national one. And he's sort of seen as his own person. He did a really good job a couple of years ago of separating himself from Biden on the border. He's run ads. He's one of those candidates who saw the defund the police ads coming from a mile away, ran an ad about, I think, how his mom was a police officer, but has really gone out and run on the issues that voters are care about and making economic case, but also running as Mark Kelly, not as a generic Democrat. And I think that's been a really, really mm-hmm. smart tactic. And to Liz's point, he hasn't been overwhelmed by Republican money either. Yeah. He's been an extraordinarily effective fundraiser. Masters has had trouble kind of getting his act together. Um, and so the outside Republican groups are not coming in in the same way. And part of that is some drama between Peter Thiel and Donald Trump, which is an interesting soap opera. But the net result is, I think, Kelly is well positioned in that race. Yeah, uh, Masters went out and picked a fight and a feud with Mitch McConnell, which would not be in my playbook for how to get help in a Senate race this year. Yeah, that was that that was sort of weird and hard to understand. What about Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp? Um, I heard you all say about the split ticket thing. And uh, what what happened to the Abrams campaign? <laughs> well, I get a fork because I think she's done. And it's an amazing story because she was at the top of the Democratic Party and made, in my view, a not smart decision to try for her comeback in an off year in a state that can have a Republican wave. Now she's going to get beat and she's going to drop to double A baseball in the Democratic Party when she could have, if Biden doesn't run again, she could have been a contender, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, Kemp is a good Paul. He's significantly ahead and it's going to stay that way, in my view. What do you think happened, Brian? I think a lot of it is structural, as Mike says. If you're running in a purple uh, slash reddish state in an off year against a popular incumbent, it's going to be very challenging no matter how adroit you are as a candidate. Um, and then I think, you know, she also made some mistakes over the last couple of years 
marketing herself a little bit more for a national Democratic audience mm -hmm. and a little less for a Georgia Democratic audience. I mean, I don't think this is going to be enough to save Beto in Texas, but I think since his presidential campaign, Beto's been very focused on a Texas-specific message, and I mm -hmm. think it took a little bit longer for Abrams to make that switch. I want you. I want to talk to you real quickly about Texas. Sorry, I'm not going to keep you guys all all afternoon. <laughs> but Beto, I know uh, Abbott leads Beto O'Rourke uh, for the Texas gubernatorial race by four points in the latest poll that we can't believe. So, is is does Beto <laughs> have a chance to pull it off? You think? I don't think so. I, I no. think that those last three to five points in Texas are like climbing Mount Everest for a Democrat. I think you know, Texas has been moving in a more competitive direction for a while, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen this year. Stay with me, friends, because right after this, we're tackling 2024 and Donald Trump. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we go 2024, uh, you think that Trump is on the decline, Mike. I heard you say that. Who do you think will run in 2024? Is Ron DeSantis the, the rising star of the Republican Party? Well, DeSantis is showing it's possible to be a Trump alternative and survive the preseason. If you're a cultural warrior and you can't be attacked as a squishy, you know, moderate rhino Republican. So he's proving the case that there can be competition to Trump. He's pulling, Trump's getting about 48, 49% of the vote in the primary right now. DeSantis is hanging on in there in the mid to high 20s. In Florida, where the Trump voters know both of them, DeSantis beats Trump. So it's just, it's like a bad x-ray. Oh, like, you know, you've got some bad organs here. Now, does that mean Trump won't be the nominee? No, he's still formidable. But it's an interesting trend. And there are others who will try to fill that void depending on how weak they think Trump is in six months. Like? Uh, so stay tuned. Well, uh, you know, there's Cruz will always try to run. Rubio always wants to run. You've got Josh Hawley, who kind of wants to be a new Trump. You've got Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas. They're both Arkansas, who's a slightly smarter version of Josh Hawley. You've got Larry Hogan, who will be the great hero of the <laughs> sensible wing of the party. 
I'm all for him. He'll get slaughtered. Well, I was going to say he's 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 very different than the other yeah. other people you mentioned. Yeah, he could upset New Hampshire and then get crushed. Um, you know, unfortunately, you've got Adam Kinzinger. I think may try to make a run at it. Mary Cheney may run. Excuse me, Liz, Liz. Cheney. Mm -hmm. Mary's an old friend of mine, and so I always <laughs> confuse them. Uh, Liz may run just to drive Trump crazy at debates, but electorally she won't have the votes in the primary. You might see a Dan Crenshaw of the House or somebody who's kind of unknown now but has some rocket fuel in them if they were paid attention to. So if, if Trump is seen as weak, there will be no shortage. On the other hand, there will be tremendous pressure to unify among one because in the plurality model, like we had in 16, Trump can keep going. If Trump decides to run, which he may not. And I would add two others, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Um, yes, definitely. Who would be interesting uh, because they're, you know, they're not white guys. And very smart, very ambitious, et cetera. Um, I, I think as Mike just said, the, the challenge for the non-Trump candidate is even if he deteriorates to 35 or 40% um, in the winner-take-all Republican primary world, that's how he won in 16 without getting majority support in the party. That is easily how he could win again in 24. And so um, you would need a, a unified, consolidated opposition. I agree, there's one wrinkle. I don't think Trump could take a defeat early like he could back then. We'll see. But I think he's got more of a glass jaw now. Because, yes, Republican primary voters or Republicans, what do you think of Trump? Love him, 85%. Should we nominate him again? Half walk away. No, time for somebody new. That's the real plurality in the party. So if, if Trump gets cut and actually bleeds, I think it could fold inside itself pretty quickly. But a lot of ifs. You know, we're see he might be running from, you know, uh, being confined to a, a Quonset hut on an airbase somewhere serving out a sentence. So, <laughs> you know, a lot a lot of unknowns in the Republican world right now. And if Joe Biden doesn't run, and I know the, the conventional wisdom is he will right now, who will be the Democratic nominee? I mean, Kamala doesn't seem to enjoy much popularity and has kind of been in the witness protection program in some <laughs> ways. And. I mean, so who is this? Who is the the person in the Democratic Party who is going to rise to the occasion? I don't know, but watch Whitmer. I think that Joe Biden is going to run, but if he doesn't run, just I think it's really incumbent upon the party to have a big, vibrant primary and not just try to hand off the nomination to someone. And look how it worked for us in twenty twenty. I think we did end up with the strongest candidate to run against Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And going forward, I think we should try to aim for that as a party. And real quickly, if the House and Senate both go Republican, you know, are they going to try to impeach Joe Biden? And for what? I mean, I think I, the House guys will. That. Well, they're played to their internal politics and there will be noise about impeaching them ridiculously for what? in the House. For what? Well, it's good for Biden. That's the one thing that could unify the party no, around him. No, but what him, are they going to impeach him for? Oh, for being a Democrat. You know, all, all the <laughs> sanity. We're in a reality show here. You know, why did, why did you know, uh, Tawny throw the chair at Belinda because she was mad she wasn't invited to the cocktail party? I mean, we've, we've turned it into that, you know? Um, it sounds like so, you watch, watch Real Housewives, Mike. No, no, I hate, I want Andy Cohen to be brought up on charges for cultural crimes. Uh, for what what that world has created. My wife, of course, watched it, and I hear it coming down the hallway. My daughters watch it, and I'm like, girls, you got really good education. Why are you watching this? Oh, everybody watches it, but Trump is a reality star. That's all he is. 
I want to hear more about Tawny and Belinda. I know. Meanwhile, <laughs> the Chinese are graduating uh, uh, 500,000 engineers a year, and, and we're screwing around with who threw a cupcake at who on the party bus. But so so what are your predictions if the Republicans win, win both houses? Everything shuts down except for executive orders. The Democratic Party starts to eat poor Joe Biden for electoral failure. The Republicans get very little done and overplay their hand and make some mistakes, though the map for them in the Senate is pretty damn good in 2024. And both parties have a big, crazy open primary that will erupt all through particularly the, the second, third quarter of, of 2023. And people on the left will be looking up real estate in Portugal and Australia. That's why the margin in the House is so important. I, I think yes. one of the fundamental mistakes of this election is a lot of Democratic donors thought, oh, well, the House is lost, so I'm not going to send money. You know what? <laughs> Losing the House by five or 10 seats is recoverable in two years. Losing it by 25 or 30, much, much more difficult. I agree. The Republicans absolutely will overplay their hand because McCarthy is a prisoner of the extremists in his own party. He's shown no capacity to stand up to them. And he's cozy enough to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, to all of them. Yeah. He, he can't well, say Well, the no. knife and fork eaters got beat. You know, the, 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 the brave 10 who voted for impeachment are all gone except for one. So the Republican casualties, and then you got the damn D-trip going in and murdering uh, uh, Michigan um, Peter, Peter Meyer, Meyer, who is a complete patriot and hero because they're doing anything to win a primary. Now they may get a nut in that district. So anyway, it, 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 it's going to be grim in the Republican House conference. There's still sane people on the Senate side. And Liz, we'll let you have the last word. Um, I, look, I agree with both what Mike and Brian said. And if I were a Republican, I really would fear um, the prospect of overreach. And the fact that they are already talking about impeaching Joe Biden for nothing, frankly, other than being a Democrat should be a real warning sign to them. So um, my prediction is that it is going to be an ugly couple of years, but um, that there probably will be some electoral backlash for them if they overplay their hands. All right, I'm going to go look for some Tums. <laughs> <laughs> Always great to talk to you all. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, Liz, Brian and Mike. And uh, let's stay in touch. Great. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Thanks. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.